right, so we'll be doing the doctrine of the Bible tonight. Next week, it'll be the doctrine of God and a consideration of the Trinity. So that's where we'll be heading next week if you want to be thinking through these things. You would have to say that the Bible is one of the most amazing possessions that we have. And, you know, we have it in so many different forms that we can maybe lose sight of that. But, but just imagine for a moment, if you could just erase your memory banks, you know there's a God, and you want to know Him, and you want to know how to get to Him, but there is no information, zero information. And, and so you, you hear that all of a sudden, this miracle that nobody doubts, everybody believes is 100% legitimate, a miracle takes place, and God manifests a book, makes it present, just like the one sitting on your lap, and he lays it all out there for you. And it is at a particular location somewhere in your town. Do you think you're going to go? Do you think you're going to want to get your hands on that and find out what's in there? I mean, this is, well, what, how do I know? No, we're just assuming because it's just a hypothetical, okay, that it, it, there's no question that this is the Word of God. And you can imagine the way they go. And the, the way that that would be treasured, and because indeed it would be, and more importantly, it is a treasure for us. The revelation of God in the Bible is the discovery of all discoveries. And He wants you to know Him. So the opportunity for us to consult a book containing the very Word of God is an unmatched treasure in this world. I don't care what you can lay your hands on. You cannot compare to the treasure. This is why the psalmist said it's better than fine gold, right? You know, I want this more than silver. And so it is that. So tonight in our, um, our summary, our brief summary on the doctrine of the Bible, we're going to talk about revelation, we're going to talk about inspiration, and we're going to talk about the canonization of Scripture. So first of all, we begin with Revelation. And as we think about this, this is a good place for us to start. God is not hiding behind the clouds. God is not shrouding Himself. He has stepped out into the sunshine, if you will, and said, here I am, look at me. This is what I think. This is what I require of you. And He has revealed Himself. He loves mankind. He's created mankind for the purpose of fellowship with him. And therefore, it's necessary that man would have a revelation to know who God is and therefore how. The word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. And it simply means to disclose or manifest. So as we talk about revelation, God has disclosed himself. He has manifested himself. And apart from God's sovereign act of disclosing himself, we would be without that knowledge. But God in his mercy has revealed himself to us. Now when we think about the disclosure, the manifestation, the revelation of God to mankind, there are two subsets that are considered under this category of revelation. One is general revelation and the other is special revelation. These are the theological terms that are that are put to it. So with general revelation, it's God's disclosure to all people through all ages. Um, this is part of the creation. This is uh, both in ourselves that we have an awareness of, of who he is. Romans chapter 1, 
verses 18 through 31, if you want to write that down as a reference. Or to think about how creation itself speaks of the Lord in this general revelation sense. We have Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. So you see there how God, in a very general way through creation, has made himself known. Everybody has access to that. And God has used that to bring people to awareness that there must be a creator. That is general revelation. Special revelation is a narrower revelation that is limited to the incarnation and to Scripture. Some would just say just to Scripture because for us today, that's the only way we can know of the incarnation. I understand that, but there was a time when the incarnation did happen, and it was pretty special. So I'll I'll throw it into two categories under special revelation, both in the incarnation um, and Scripture. With the incarnation, we think of John 1, 18. It says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He has manifested Him. So if you want to know who God is, you must look to Jesus. Because he is that um, perfect representation of the Father. Now the significance of Scripture is that everything we know about life, everything we know about God, everything we know about the atonement of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, his second coming, um, how the church is is, is to function, is all found in the Bible. And it's because of this revelation from God to man that we should study the Scriptures with all diligence. I mean, listen, I, I, just a practical exhortation. Have a quiet time. Open your Bible and read it. Study it. Because it's yours. It's been placed into your hands. And this should motivate us. It's like God has spoken. And he's given us his word. Now, as this... Uh, Diving deeper into this idea of the special revelation of the Word of God, how has God done this? How has God brought the Word of God to us? And He's done it through, uh, surprisingly, through both the Spirit of the Lord, but human agency. We understand God speaking, but it's a human agency that is that is so amazing that God has chosen to work in this way. I mean, in one sense, if there was just a, a shaft of light that burned a hole in this roof and you know, planted a, you know, a, a, a text, a holy text there for us, um, we would look at that and we would say, this is so amazing. This is, a, this is from God. Well, God hasn't done that with a, you know, a shaft of light from heaven. He's done it with His Spirit speaking to men to write and to record what He it was revealing to them. Pretty amazing. The Apostle Peter writes that the prophets of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And I want to read this passage to you. Um, 2 Peter, it's 1, 16 through 21. And it's really verse 21 that we find that, that phrase, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But I just love the, the entire context that we get in this section. It says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor 
uh, Father, honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So the Mount of Transfiguration. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the dawn, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so God, by His Holy Spirit, was giving them a revelation. And then as they, they received this revelation, they were able to record this. So the process by which um, Scripture came to us is that Spirit moved writers and they recorded God-breathed writings. Um, led by the Holy Spirit. And the interesting thing is, it was not dictation, was it? It wasn't God saying, write this word and you know, construct your sentence this way. It was a revelation that came to them in such a, a beautiful and unique way, never to be repeated, that these men were able to use their own style, skill, and they penned a perfect record of what the Holy Spirit was moving them. So you can read the different styles as you go through Scripture. So the Lord did not dictate and take over their personalities and their skills and their experiences and just say it will sound like this. They received a clear understanding of the revelation and then they wrote using them. So God used human agency. Not only did he use human agency, but we know that scripture as it came to us, it came in a progressive way. Now again, I think it was a couple of weeks ago we talked about this and how that the idea that the Word of God is a progressive revelation, it almost sounds like, oh, are you sure about that? Sure about that. Sure about it. You are too. It's just, it's maybe the word progressive kind of troubles us a little bit, but it is the word that is used. And it's a unique feature of Scripture that it is progressive. It's easily established that God did not give the entirety of His revelation all at once. Did the Bible come in a single generation or in a single, you know, long three months where everybody received it? No, it came over a long period of time. D different languages, written by men with different vocations, in different circumstances. Some in a palace, some in a field, some in a prison. And they wrote somewhere at, at the, the heights of, of, you know, celebration and joy. Some wrote at the the depths of sorrow, like the book of Lamentations. But we know that God has spoken to us in these last days through His Son, right? Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. So you can really see that progressive nature of Scripture in that verse. But I think there's a helpful comment and quote I want to share with you. This is from Wayne Grudem. And he says, History of the Old Testament progressed. God's words of promise became more and more specific. And the forward-looking faith of God's people 
accordingly became more and more definite. And that is what we're talking about when we speak of the revelation, excuse me, the progressive revelation of Scripture. Here's a verse for you, Luke 24, 47. It says, And the, at, in beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. So there were Scriptures that were revealed, but it was not fully understood that, that they were writing about Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whose mother was Mary. They didn't know that. And so Jesus, beginning with the revelation that had come in the past, brings it to its conclusion and says, let me tell you all about me. Because this revelation that you've had in the Old Testament, it was all leading up to me. So today we have a complete revelation through the Scriptures and Jesus Christ. It is not progressing anymore. It has come to its fullness. Again, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. He spoke in different ways and at different times, but he has in his last days spoken to us through his Son. And so it is progressive. Now when we think about the Scripture itself, um, there's a few elements I want to talk about. I want to talk about inspiration. I want to talk about inerrancy and uh, being infallible. The preservation of Scripture and um, I think I have one more, a few more, a sufficient and authoritative, and we'll leave it at that. That's going to be the bulk of our study. So when we talk about Scripture, we come to this word I've already used, and that is inspiration. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, this is where the, that word comes from. And what we read is, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the word here, inspiration, is a Greek word, theonoustos. Theo meaning God, noustos, pneumatic, air, meaning spirit. So God breathed. It's the same word for air as it is for breath in the Greek language. So theonoustos means God breathed. This is what they received. All Scripture is given by God's breathing it out. He inspired it. He gave it to them. They, as the revelation came, then the next step was what? They wrote these things down. They were moved along, carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote these things down. That's a, a term that's given in scripturation. We'll come to it again later. You don't have to worry about it too much right now, but just you'll hear it again. And so this is amazing that the, the mind of God was expressed to these individuals and they recorded it for us. But when we talk about inspiration, people have different ideas about what is meant by inspiration. And maybe even you, if you've never thought much about this topic or thought of the word inspiration, um, maybe you've thought of it in, in maybe too simple of terms. Because when we say inspiration, we don't mean, oh, I was inspired. So I, I saw this beautiful sunset, and the artist says, I was inspired to paint a scene. I was inspired to write a poem. And certainly that, that, that word is valid in that context, but that is not the way in which we're using the word inspiration. We don't mean I just had a, I was, you know, kind of moved in my soul. No, the, the living God spoke to these men of what they were to write down. And so some will say they, 
the scripture is inspired like that. Others would say, well, it's like uh, the, the concepts, the themes of scripture, the big picture of scripture, that, that's something that's trustworthy, but the details are not. Which always gets down into this tricky business of, well, who figures out the big picture and who figures out the details? Because when you get there, now we're depending upon somebody else to tell us what part of this big book you should actually take as being trustworthy. So what we believe the Bible teaches, and I I think this is easily proven, and I'll show it to you in just a moment. What we would say of inspiration is that we believe in verbal plenary, or a simpler way to say it is we believe that every word is inspired of God. The verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture is what we hold to. i got a quote for you here. This is from uh, Millard Erickson, and he says, The verbal theory, the verbal plenary theory, insists that the Holy Spirit's influence extends beyond the direction of thoughts to the selection of words used to convey the message. The work of the Holy Spirit is so intense. I love this. The work of the Holy Spirit is so intense that each word is the exact word God wants used at the point to express the message. So Jesus had this high view of Scripture. Uh, He believed in the inspiration of Scripture. And we hear him constantly quoting from the Old Testament. Jesus even said that neither one jot or one tittle would pass from the law until all was fulfilled. So these are like the smallest marks uh, in the Hebrew language. It doesn't even account for a full letter. It refers to some of the the breathing marks and emphasis in, in that construction of that one letter. He said not even one of these aspects of the word is going to pass away. But I think the strongest argument for this is that you can look at the, a single word in Scripture, and a single word can hang intense amount of theological meaning to it. A single word. Um, I'm going to give you two references. I don't have time to go into it, so look it up. It'd be some good homework for you guys to work on. John 8.58 and Galatians 3.16. John 8.58 and Galatians 3.16. In John 8.58, you're going to see Jesus refer to himself as I am. He doesn't say I will be. He doesn't say I was. He says I am, present tense. And that caused them to want to kill him. So not only a single word, but even the tense of a word. Because if, if Jesus would have said, I will be, they wouldn't have picked up stones to kill him. But that he said, I am, he was identifying himself with the revelation that Moses received when the Lord says, Tom, that I am that I am has sent you. So it's, it's that idea there. Galatians 3.16 refers to the seed. And you can see the theological argument that Paul makes there. He doesn't say, you know, seeds as of many, but seeds as of one. So not only a single word and the tense, but a single word and its number. Singular makes a theological difference. So you can see why even a single word is important and why we would cling to a verbal plenary that we believe that the very words of Scripture are significant in the way in which men wrote them inspired of the Holy Spirit. On matters of history, you will find people that will say, well, you know, you can't trust the scriptures when it matters of history or geography or 
geology or other things like this. Well, let me just pick up on this one item of history. Consider the historical account in the Bible that Jesus rose from the dead. Can you trust that historical account? That's a matter of history. So if, you, if we are to say that the historical uh, teachings of the Bible are not reliable, then we don't have a faith, Paul would say, that's worth believing. Paul said that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then, then our faith is worthless. So you can see that, e- that even the, you know, the, the backbone of Christianity is um, inseparably linked to a historical event. Events, really. Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose from the dead. So you can see why it's important that we accept a, a verbal plenary that every word of Scripture is inspired. Otherwise, we start getting down into, again, who's going to tell us what parts are and are not. So let's talk a little bit, still under the, the idea of Scripture here, moving from um, this idea of inspiration. Let's talk about inerrancy and it being infallible. The word inerrancy is a reference to the Bible in its original autographs. In other words, as, they, as the men actually wrote them, these things down, and that they are free from error. Today, we don't have any original writings of Scripture. All we have are copies of the original that are called manuscripts. If you've ever read something and you see the abbreviation MSS and you wondered what that is, that's manuscripts. What are manuscripts? They are ancient copies of original writings. And for Scripture, we don't have any original writings. We have copies. But we have a great abundance of manuscripts. And so the more manuscripts you have, not hard to figure this out, the easier it is to determine whether or not you have an accurate uh, reading of what the originals were. And so we have not just hundreds, we have thousands of New Testament manuscripts. And as we look at this, we can see that it is reliable. The doctrine of inerrancy is nothing more than a logical conclusion that because God inspired, Theonoustos, God breathed on men to write Scripture, that it is therefore without error. And it is also infallible. That is, the Bible is not only without error in matters of faith and ethical conduct, but it's infallible in every matter it touches. So we already discussed this a little bit. But you know, what began to happen was it became necessary to say that it's inerrant and infallible because people began to say, well, yeah, I believe in the inspiration of Scripture and the inerrancy, but they, had, they began to have other ideas of what that meant. So again, Erickson says, Uh, They prefer to say that the Bible is infallible, but they hesitate to use the word inerrant. So that's why you'll sometimes see that it's inerrant and infallible, because, again, people are trying to find a way to, I think, deceive people. Say, oh, yeah, I believe the the Word of God is infallible. But they have a a, couple lines that they ought to add with it, because they don't really believe that the Word of God is inerrant. Again, another... A well-known theologian, Charles Ryrie, says, Formerly, all that was necessary to affirm one's belief in inspiration was the statement, I believe in the inspiration of the Bible. But not anymore, because people have put so many um, other ideas connected to that. So you need to be aware of that. 
for yourself and any teaching that you would put yourself under. But for us, what a blessing to have a written statement from heaven that this is an inerrant and trustworthy guide for our lives. How about preservation of Scripture? I think anybody who has thought long about the Bible and the Scripture that we have has wondered whether or not the Bible is accurate representation of those original writings. I mean, if we don't have the originals, well then how can we be certain that it is accurate? Again, the more manuscripts you have, the easier it is to come to that conclusion. And so as you put all these together, you can see this, that it has been delivered accurately. But I, this is an interesting piece of information. Um, and that is that um, <laughs> the church fathers, so those men that were um, church leaders in the early days of the church, that's what the church fathers were, they were, they, they were prolific writers. And um, they had over 36,000 New Testament references in their writings. Scripture verses. 36,000 Scripture references. And this number rep- represents nearly every verse of Scripture in the New Testament. So not only do you have these, this pile of manuscripts, copies of the original text... But now over here you have something else, not inspired. But as they write on topics, they're quoting scripture that comes from these manuscripts. And when you take just that, you could, from that alone, you could have a a complete understanding of Christian doctrine and faith. It wouldn't give you everything, but it's nearly everything. Uh, Quote again here from... uh, Vody Backman, and he says of the church fathers, it says, they acted as a sort of taping device used in the preserving of scriptures. They wrote letters, sermons, commentaries, and journals in which they painstakingly copied passages of scripture. In fact, Metzger comments, so extensive are these citations that if all other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, they would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. So it's the volume that helps us to come to the conclusion we have something trustworthy. Um, F.F. Bruce says the variant reading. So you have manuscripts and maybe they don't line up 100%. Sometimes maybe it has to do with, with a thing like is this a singular or is this a plural? Is this word, it's not there. The, the word is here. And, and so w- those are called variant writings, uh, manuscripts. Um, so he says of these variants, because the, the mind wonders, well, how big of a deal is that? I mean, we're, if, okay, we got all these scriptures, uh, manuscripts that we can use to compare, and we have the, the pile of New Testament, or the church fathers writing and quoting for the New Testament. That's helpful, but, but the variants... The variations in those manuscripts, how significant is that? Well, this is what F.F. Bruce says. The variant readings about which any doubt remains among textual critics of the New Testament affect no material question of historic fact or the Christian faith and practice. And so where you do have them, it has been is able to be put back together to have such an accurate 
understanding. This is the New Testament. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I'm really don't, I'm not going to get into, but these were scrolls that were found of the um, Old Testament, um, provides clear evidence that the scribes faithfully transmitted and preserved the Old Testament from one generation to another generation. Of course, this, to say nothing of the fact that Jesus quoted from it and referred to it and put his seal of approval on it. So at the end of the day, no believer should ever feel uncertain of the faithfulness of the text they have on their lap. If you do, there is so much you can study with regard to this that will build your faith up. And I'd be happy to point you to some of those resources. Probably one that a lot of us are familiar with would be evidence that demands a verdict or more evidence that demands a verdict by Josh McDowell. Um, there's, there's another one, um, a book called um, Introduction to the Bible, written by Geisler and Nix, N-I-X, and that these are some great resources. So, um, the inter- general introduction to the Bible, but don't be deceived by the title. It's a, it's a doorstop. Um, uh, it's, yeah, the word general is kind of like, oh, okay. No, not really. Um, not in that simplistic sense. But if you want to dig in, the, this is a place you can dig in. So it is not only um, inspired, um, inerrant, it's not only been preserved for us, but it's also sufficient. So Scripture is sufficient. What does that mean? That means that Scripture can make definitive statements about all aspects of doctrine and life. And this is where we go to figure it out. Do I need to say this? You know, Talk shows are not the place to go to find out how to live your life. Blogs out there on the internet are not the place to go. Somebody who's techie and savvy can put that together and you know, put it out there. Podcasts, listen, you've got the Bible. You have the Bible. Study it. Read it. For it is sufficient to lead you into faith and to tell you how to live in every aspect of your life. We've been, obli- we've been blessed with this. Now, the next point is that it's authoritative. So we talk about sufficiency and inspiration and infallibility and that it's been preserved and it's been inspired. And, um, you know, Bible-believing you know, uh, people like ourselves... We don't have any problem. But now when it comes to this last point of authoritative, this is where you get pushback. What does it mean when we say that it's authoritative? Well, it has the authority to tell you how to live your life. It has the authority to say how mankind is reconciled to God. It has the authority to tell you what to do with your marriage your anger, your lust, your materialism, gossip. It has the authority to tell you what to do with your resources, how to spend your time, what should be a priority. And so the authority of Scripture. There's a lot of people that love a lot of things about church. They love a lot of, you know, they love, they love history of the Bible. They love theology. They love ta- digging into these deep things. They like apologetics. They, you know, they'll, they'll fight fiercely for the inerrancy of Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture. 
But suddenly, when it comes to the matter of how you got to deal with that person at work and how you have to forgive them, oh, now what do we do with this inspired, infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient, well-preserved Word of God? How do you respond? How do you respond when somebody comes to you and says, well, you know, brother or sister, you know what the Word of God says. Don't be quoting Scripture to me. Really? And why not? Why not? Well, if I'm just in a bad space. Well, that's the right time to hear Scripture because it is corrective. And so when somebody comes and they bring the Word of the Lord to you and it feels like a wound, well, you're just being loved. Because faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And you know, the Word of God, it will cut into your life. It won't hack into your life, but it will be a precision cut into your life to deal with those things. So is there room for God's Word to speak authoritatively to you on what you need to do? Well, yeah, as soon as she hears it and does what? No, 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 no. We're not talking about the authority of God's Word for somebody else. We're talking about the authority of God's Word for ourselves. So the next section uh, deals with canonization. And the word canon literally means read. Like a, you know, from the marsh, a read. And it later came to identify which books were inspired of God. So the canon of Scripture, you know, not the weapon that fires you know, heavy lead balls, but the canon, the read of Scripture, um, is the collection of inspired books of the Bible. And this is where a lot of questions come up. The New Testament, the Protestant, you know, the Old Testament has 39 books. In, as we divide it up, the Jews may combine some of these books together into one, but um, essentially we would agree on those same 39 books as being inspired 27 books of the New Testament, and the Protestants, the Catholics, would have some more um, apocryphal books than that. But um, we believe um, that, that there are 66 inspired books of Scripture. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And it is important to remember that the canon that is inspired Scripture is self-determining. Scripture is self-determining as being inspired, not the church. The church does not do that. The church can acknowledge what Scripture is, but the church does not make something inspired. Do you you understand the difference of that? It's, It's significant because a lot of people get hung up on this and say, well, a group of people got together and said, this is inspired, and here you go. And the idea is that, you know, the church was making Um, stuff inspired and that's not the way it went there there was a method there was a process by by which they did this which brings us to that word I used at the beginning of this study and that is inscripturation it's kind of the the early steps of the the whole canonization of the collecting together of inspired uh, writings of scripture it was inscripturation so you have the Holy Spirit inspiring a man and then the man would write that down. And that's that Second Peter 1.21 passage where they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't just that they were given a revelation. It's that they were moved along by the Holy Spirit while they wrote it. 
So not only the thoughts that came, the thoughts were the inspired part, but the, the writing of Scripture and scripturation was also overseen by the Holy Spirit. It's important that we understand that it's both of those things. Um, and again, working inside of their personalities and in their backgrounds. On this word for um, moved, um, it's, here's a definition for it. It's kind of a lengthy definition for it. But it means to cause to follow a certain course in direction or conduct. To follow a certain course. That's what 2 Peter 1.21, moved along, carried along by, means. To follow a certain course. Well, what is that course? The Holy Spirit was determining that course. And so they wrote of the revelation, the inspiration they had received from the Lord. So the significant matter under this idea here of inscripturation and being moved along is that human authors um, were ensured of accurately writing down the revelation that they had received. So that, that's like an early step of how do we know what we have been handed down to us. Well, it's that they, they wrote it accurately, first and foremost. Secondly, there was an evaluation process that the church went through to help discern the, the part of, of, of the books that were inspired. Um, and so Jesus helped out a whole lot in this whole process, didn't he? Because of the many times he quoted from the Old Testament and affirmed that what the Jews had in Scripture was from the Lord. But uh, Charles Ryrie, um, in his book, Basic Theology, he lays out a threefold test that these men used to come to an understanding of what Scripture was inspired, what, what books were inspired. Um, first was the test of authority, which meant this. The book needed to be penned by an individual that was recognized as a spokesman of the Lord. It wasn't just anybody. It's like, who is this person that wrote this and is claiming that this is Scripture? Well, we really don't know who it is. Well, you know, we're not going to receive it. Now, today, 2,000 years later, we may have trouble identifying who some of the authors were. But back there at that point in time, they, they didn't. So they say, is this a recognized spokesman of the Lord? Second, um, does this um, show internal evidence of its uniqueness and evidence of inspiration? So they, look, they, they took some time to measure this and look and say, is this something that is inspired? And then lastly, they were to determine whether or not this book that was being circulated by the church had been accepted. Did the church accept this as the inspired word of God? So in other words... You know, after a couple hundred years of the church having the New Testament scriptures, if um, the majority of the church did not recognize it, then it wasn't accepted. And so this was the threefold test that was used by the church to acknowledge which books were inspired. So they would test authority. Um, was there internal evidence that it was inspired? And then was a book circulated and acknowledged by the church. So these were the three things that they, they did. And um, as they did that, they came to the conclusion that there were 27 books of the New Testament that were indeed inspired. Um, the Old Testament scriptures 
um, concluded their writing about 435 B.C., so 435 years um, before the birth of the Lord. So that's when the Old Testament had been finished writing. Um, and there's um, all kinds of stages along the way in which um, the scribes and, and, and faithful followers of, of, um, of the Jewish faith, that they were also working on establishing what is canonical. Um, but without question, um, at the Council of Gemini in 90 AD, there was an official list that was put together, put out by the church, and said, these are the ones which is not very, I mean, it's, it's what had been, you know, it happened many times among the Jews. But um, that really was a, the, the final statement on it. Um, again, New Testament, 27 New Testament books written by different authors. And um, at the Council of Laodicea, so a little history here, the, the Council of Laodicea, 363 A.D., um, both the Old Testament and uh, the New Testament books were um, determined to be exclusively read, and that's what you have in your Bible right now. That 363 A.D., this is the real deal. Um, Athanasius in 367 A.D. identified 27 books as the only true books, uh, New Testament books of Scripture. The Council of Hippo, Hippo in 393 identified 27 as well um, books, and then the Council of Carthage, 397. Uh, affirmed that the only canonical books that were to be read were the 66 books that are in yours. So there was a lot of time and attention that was put to this, but there was, there was wide agreement as to which ones. Now, there was, not to say there was no disagreement and that there wasn't question, you certainly can read of that. But here's, a, I think, an important quote for us to, to see here. That it's important to note that religious councils at no time had any power to cause books to be inspired. Rather, they simply recognized that which God had inspired at the exact moment the books were written. At the moment those books were written, they were inspired. They did not wait until um, a group of men got together to evaluate them, and then they said, these are inspired, and then the book came. No, that's not the way it happened. At the moment that man received that inspiration and then was moved by the Holy Spirit and wrote it down, it was inspired at that moment. So church fathers were not inspiring scripture. Um, they were acknowledging that which was already inspired and it's that threefold process that they used to um, come to that. As mentioned earlier, so now we have a closed canon. We have a closed collection of inspired books that we call scripture. We're not looking for new revelation. Now, that is far different than you looking for guidance and wisdom in the decisions of your life. I, you know, if you call, I need some revelation, I, you know, okay, we'll dig a little deeper. Probably what you're saying is, I need some guidance, I need some wisdom about these decisions that I'm facing. And we pray and we ask the Lord, and He says that He will give us wisdom. And so that is something that we still seek the Lord on. But this is something that is specific to our lives. This is not a matter. We, we're not looking for any new doctrine. We're not looking for a new practice. You may look for wisdom and the application of your life and the, the way in which you spend your life or where you live, um, but you're not looking for new revelation. 
And, and this is important for us to know. And there are, there are those out there that speak of how we're coming into days when we're going to have apostles that are going to come and they're going to be giving us new revelation. I don't want it. We don't need it. Because God has spoken to us in these last days through His Son and we have the Scripture. It's, it's, it's a closed... The, the revelation, while progressive, came to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ and then those New Testament writers that were inspired to write about what it is he brought to us. So it is closed. Um, God used men in that first century to write it down, and we're not looking for others to come along. Um, I believe that you know, the gifts of the Spirit do function and they do work. I believe that um, a person can prophesy, and by that I'll give the definition given in 1 Corinthians 14, somewhere around verses 1 through 3, that he who prophesies speaks words of comfort and exhortation and edification. Who's got a problem with that? Who's got a problem with being exhorted, comforted, or edified? None of us have a problem. And so somebody who prophesies can speak forth the word of God in an exhortation, can speak forth the word of God to edify or to bring comfort. So I, I believe in that. But I don't believe there are apostles Today, like there were in the first century, that special class of apostles and prophets that were writing to bring Scripture. So I think you've got to make a hard division between those two groups. The whole process of canonization, it was long, as I mean, you heard the dates, and it was a heated debate that took place. But God raised up godly men like Athanasius, the many different councils where they came together. You know, he even used a heretic by the name of Marcion because Marcion came up with his own canon of Scripture. And so the church said, time out. We need to, we need to put down something because his list is not a good list. And so they came together and, and they, they put that. So even opposition you know, kind of forced the hand of these early church fathers to agree upon and present to the church, this is what is inspired. So you, as a believer, can read with confidence the Bible, knowing that what you hold in your hands is a faithful, accurate copy of inspired revelation from God. And so we need to get into the Word. And as we get into the Word, um, I, I just want to encourage you and challenge you in, in this thought. We read earlier that no scripture is of any private interpretation. That's that First Peter 1 passage. And we often will hear statements like this, or maybe you've even been asked a question. And I, I'll, I'll give room for bad phrasing of the question. But sometimes you will hear people say, hey, what does this Bible verse mean to you? And so if you're just saying, can you tell me what, how you understand this Bible verse, it's fine. If you are saying, we all have our own interpretation of what Scripture means, give me your spin on it. That's a bad question. Because really, the, our object, our goal, should not be to find out what each of us think about a Bible passage. Our goal should be to find out what does the Bible passage say. That is so key. We, we believe that God communicated in, in language. Language means something. It's composed of words. 
and there's syntax, and there is uh, sentence structure, and there's paragraphs, there's flows of thoughts. You can find definitions, and all of this means something. But there are those today that will look at the Bible and they'll say, well, really, that's your interpretation. And, you know, but, you know, my interpretation is. And we're not talking about those very few passages that are complicated for us to understand. And we wonder, could it mean this or could it mean that? We're talking about the, the fundamentals of the faith, of how to live our life, that is written in the most simplistic language. And people will say, well, this is what it means to me. And it has nothing to do with the words mean. It has nothing to do with the sentence structure. It has nothing to do with the, the context with which it is written. It just, in their mind, there's a word in that sentence that inspires a thought in my mind. And I spin off and I say whatever I want. So, for example, probably one of the worst terrible examples is somebody saying, well, when Jesus called Lazarus to come out of the tomb, this was him telling people that are secret about their homosexuality to come out and to speak about it. How do you possibly get that? Because there's the words, come forth or come out. And so it's like, well, I know those words. And I've got a whole world of, of, of meaning and understanding, and I'm going to take this scripture, and I'm going to throw it into here, and I'll infuse it with my understanding of my culture, my days, my own philosophy, my, my leanings. No, that's not the way it works. It, it doesn't work that way. Words mean something. If, if you were to read a love letter, and in this, somebody was writing and saying, you know, I love you with my whole heart, and you're the only one for me, and I can't wait until we can be you know, together again and spend the rest of our life. And you're to look at that, and your friend says, look at this letter you know, from, from, this, from this guy or from this girl. Look, I mean, we're going to get married. We're going to spend the rest of our lives. You go, let me see that. Hmm, to me, this sounds like she's done with you. <laughs> well, how can you say that? She says she wants to spend you know, our entire life together. Yeah, but to me, that's not what it means. Your response would be, well, you're a nut job, and I really don't care anymore what you have to say. I know, what, I know what words mean. Well, listen, the Bible can be understood. And so we're not looking to just infuse meaning into Scripture. That's called isogesis. That's putting a meaning in. We, we believe in something that's called exogesis, which is to take out. We want to take out the meaning of Scripture and understand it. Um, you've heard me quote this if you've been around for a while. Um, somebody by the name of um, uh, Reverend Mona West, and she writes something that sounds like this. I get the exact quote for you, but she says, she goes, you know, finally we're at a place where the uh, meaning of uh, the reader's understanding of Scripture has as much value, if not more, as the original writing. That's called reader response. We believe in the author response. What, what did the author's intent, excuse me, what does the author intend? What did he mean when he wrote these things down? And so we have this glorious book, but it's been maligned and twisted in, in so many different ways. So as you approach the Word of God, you want to understand the words, you want to understand the context. You want to compare it with the rest of Scripture. 
and we come up with an interpretation that's not a private, you just one-of-a-kind meaning. It's like this is an agreement with you know, 2,000 years of understanding. There will be differences. I understand that. But, you know, Bible-believing churches do not have that much that they really disagree about when it comes to theology. There are certainly those, those points, but not like what is often made out to be. God has communicated his heart, his mind, and his will. And so it's incumbent upon each of us to study the word of God for ourselves. That we might walk in it. That we might be able to tell others how to live it out. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, that we're, we're not just trying to figure out how to live life. We're not trying to go into some dark cave and come up with an understanding of some experience. Lord, you have spoken. You've stepped out into the broad light of your word and said, here I am. And we want to thank you for it, Lord. We thank you for the men that have translated this and preserved it and even given their lives to put it into the hands of the church. We are grateful, Lord, that we have this inspired book in our laps. Help us all to approach it with a holy awe and reverence, but intense excitement to be spoken to by you. Lord, that while we're grateful for those people you put around our life, that we can just come and pick up the word and be taught by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we are grateful for that. So encourage us, Lord. Strengthen us. And Lord, we pray for those that have strayed and they have dismissed the value of the word of God. Although one day they maybe would have fought more vigorously than anybody else for the inspiration. Lord, we pray that you would bring them back. We pray, Lord, that you would turn their hearts back to the beauty and the purity of your word. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.